Greetings, fellow explorers of consciousness and human potential. My name is Shane Lamaster. I'm your host, as always, and you are listening to the Conversations with the Mind podcast, episode number 23. I want to start out by thanking every each and every one of you listeners. Um, it is because of you that our listenership continues to grow. I, my reach is only so far on social media, but it is with your help by liking and sharing our podcasts and talking about these ideas with your family and friends and getting them um, to listen to the podcast as well, that we can get this message out to more and more people as uh, humanity seems to be reaching this point of uh, positive consciousness shift. So I want to thank you all for continuing to like and share our podcast. Uh, just so you all know, um, it is possible to donate to the podcast. I don't take any profits from it. All proceeds go towards getting out a better message to you. So all proceeds will go towards upgrading our systems, upgrading our microphones, that type of thing, and upgrading the podcast space so that we can bring in more guests and, like I said, get out a better and clearer message to you all. So if you want to donate, there should be a link at the bottom of the uh, episode description that you can donate. But again, the best way to support the podcast is to continue to listen and to like and share it. And just so you know, uh, we also have a YouTube channel and it's, it's linked to um, my private practice, MindOps. So if you go to our um, YouTube page for MindOps, you'll find a number of videos that we put up there breaking down some of the concepts that we talk about on this show. And stay tuned because we're going to be uploading videos for many years to come as the research comes out and changes the field. I want to also spend a little time and let you all know about our um, sponsor, uh, my private practice counseling and consulting company, uh, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. We're a mobile and eclectic counseling company, and we offer one-on-one -on -one sessions, um, distance sessions, so through the phone or through, um, through video chat as well. We're set up to facilitate that. And we're mobile in the sense that we like to come to your environment or at least hold sessions in the environments in which you perform uh, with our main, um, our main goal to be to help you to achieve your potential um, in performing in whatever you do, whether you're a student, a professional, um, an athlete, or just someone who, who wants to perform better mentally. Um, maybe you're experiencing mental health issues or whatever. Um, please reach out to us or go to our website and see what we do. We have a number of specialties. Uh, we specialize in individuals, teams, small and large groups and businesses. Um, uh, like I said, there's a YouTube channel, um, also associated with mind ops. And we also specialize in addiction counseling, general psychotherapy, psychedelic integration therapy, and sport and performance psychology. So check us out. So on to the good news story section of the podcast. And this good news story is more of a local good news story. We, we briefly talked about it on the last podcast with our last guest, but, uh, recently, um, in the news here in Colorado, at least let's see, we're in the we're in the mid to end of January 2019, and a lot of the news that I've been seeing, uh, I've been really liking coming out of Denver and Denver's initiative to try and uh, decriminalize um, 
psilocybin for therapies and for um, general use by the public. I think this is a great effort going forward. Um, as far as I know, and I haven't read too far into it, but um, they were seeking uh, signatures for the ballot to put it on um, our next voting ballot, and things are looking good. Um, I have some friends who are in contact with the with the groups that are pushing that forward, and that seems to be going forward in our favor. So hopefully in the next few years, it will at least be able to be prescribed, um, but it would be even better if it was available for um, use by the general public, in my opinion. So that's our good news story today. Um, check it out uh, on the news feeds. I'm sure it's, it's reaching nationwide news uh, outlets as we speak. So we have a very special guest today, a very, very dear friend of mine. Um, his name is Rafael Lancelotta, and his, uh, his bio is pretty extensive. So I'm going to fly through it real quick, and, and we'll touch on a number of, of things that he's interested in in the podcast I first met Raphael at the uh, psychedelic conference in Oakland. It was the big maps conference that was out there a couple of years ago. And uh, we met and just kind of hit it off and had similar interests and found out we were located in a similar area. So um, we just started talking and have been friends ever since. Raphael holds a master's degree in mental health counseling. Um, he's been an international presenter at a number of uh, psychology and psychedelic conferences uh, all over the world. He has a number of published articles in peer-reviewed research journals on 5-MeO-DMT, um, psychedelic compound that we've talked about a number of times on the podcast. He's currently uh, conducting a study, a similar study on uh, the compound mescaline, and hopefully he'll, he'll fill us in on, on what he's hoping to uh, achieve and discover through that study. Um, Raphael is also a therapist. Uh, he has experience in wilderness therapy as well as crisis behavioral services in hospitals. And currently, he is working at a great clinic down in Denver called Innate Path that facilitates both cannabis and ketamine therapies. Um, and it's great to have Raph on the on the podcast. I want to uh, welcome you. And um, yeah, welcome on, Raph. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So um, let's get it started. And I always start my podcast with the same question um, I want to ask you, and that is, what does the phrase conversations with the mind uh, mean to you? That's the name of the podcast. And I just want to get a sense as far as uh, how it resonates with you and what comes up for you when I mention that phrase. Well, to, to me, I, I really like the Buddhist idea of mind. Um, and I think you know, when, when Buddhists talk about mind, they talk about this larger um, structure of consciousness. And so I like the idea of, you know, conversations with the mind being, you know, a conversation from, you know, the larger mind that comes through me that's interfacing with you. Very nice. Um, I, too, uh, ascribe to that um... The way that the Buddhists conceptualize, you know, this, this greater mind, um, you know, they, we here in the West might've heard it referred to as like the one or, uh, this one universal energy or something in my last podcast, um, with my, with my last guest, we talked about the possibility that there's this, this giant cloud of information and experience, uh, maybe a, a larger consciousness that we can all learn to tap into, to download information and knowledge from. And it sort of lines up with these, with these Buddhist concepts too, where we can 
engage with a collective mind or a collective knowledge base in order to bring uh, whatever messages, healing messages, uh, messages for technologies, things like that, bring them into this reality and uh, interact with them in practical human ways. Yeah, I like that idea. Nice. Um, so yeah, why don't we get started? And, um, you know, cause I'm pretty familiar with your, with your DMT research. I've read a lot of it and, uh, but a lot of our listening audience might not be, uh, so if you could go into, you know, what is some of your, what if, are some of the things you've studied with your five MEO, uh, DMT research, as well as, uh, what you're looking forward to do with the mescaline research. Sure. So, I mean, uh, one of the first projects that I helped with was uh, led by Joseph Barsuglia. Um, he was uh, working out of Crossroads Treatment Center in Mexico. And um, so the paper that he was leading uh, recently came out, which was the comparison study of 5-MeO-DMT to psilocybin. Um, and so that was comparing the intensity of mystical uh, experiences that uh, people were having with 5-MeO-DMT and psilocybin. And um, it was generally, you know, the general finding was that uh, 5-MeO-DMT was able to occasion a mystical experience uh, as reliably as a moderate dose of psilocybin. Hmm. And, um, you know, within a shorter time period. Uh, and then I've also um, helped uh, Alan Davis. Uh, he's in postdoc at Johns Hopkins and I've helped I've worked with him on a survey study that was distributed worldwide and it was an epidemiological survey collecting information on many different aspects of uh, use people who use 5-MeO-DMT and uh, from that uh, we published a, a large um, you know, overall paper, which you can find online. Um, you know, if you just type in 5-MeO-DMT epidemiology, you can find it. And, you know, just getting some of the general information of, um, you know, the types of uh, the sources of 5-MeO-DMT use, whether it's synthetic, toad, or um, plants, you know, some unknown plant extracts. Um, we also gathered information about, uh, you know, uh, spiritual beliefs and, um, you know, mystical, mystical experiences, what kinds of mystical experiences people were having, what kinds of challenging experiences people were having. And um, so we have a lot of that general data. And then we've gone on to do subsets of that data to get even, you know, more specific pictures. So, um, a team at Johns Hopkins, some of the research assistants have uh, worked on um, the impact of 5-MeO-DMT on addictive behaviors. And um, another team has uh, worked on a, a paper on its impacts on depression and anxiety. And um, I'm currently working on um, writing about the use of cognitive, social, and environmental benefit enhancement strategies uh, in, in terms of how those um, are associated with increased positive effects of 5-MeO-DMT in the general population. And um, so 
that's the general summary and I can, you know, I can give you some more details on that piece uh, if you're interested, but also, and then the Mescaline um, project that's being led by um, a researcher in the Netherlands. Um, well, in the Czech Republic, her name is uh, Malin Utag. And um, she has also been, she's also done research on 5-MeO-DMT. Um, but she's helped put together a pretty awesome team of researchers. Uh, she's pulled in Alan uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, she's uh, Christopher Timmerman from Imperial College. Uh, Annie Ortiz. Uh, and uh, myself. And there are a few other people that have been involved. Uh, Don Davis. Um, who's also on the board for Source Research Foundation. And um, basically, we're trying to do a similar thing as an epidemiological uh, survey that can be sent globally to really find out more about, you know, what are the forms of mescaline that are being used? Um, what are the effects that the use of mescaline is having on the user base? And um, yeah, so that's generally what's uh, in the research realm, the things that I've been, uh, been a part of. Well, that's fascinating. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, people, people in the general public might not understand sort of how the scientific research process unfolds in order for us to come to some of the, the discoveries that they read about in the, in the magazines and the journals. Um, and I've always been fascinated and always wanted to be a part of that process which you're doing right now um as far as you know i have some specific questions about about the research and um specifically the first one you know with with the dmt survey that went out and you were assessing um, people's reasons for using it um, what did you find were some of the top um reasons or intentions that people would want to use uh, 5-meo dmt you mentioned addictions but uh as far as like ranking um Percentage-wise, uh, what were the highest percentages of uh, intentional use? Um, so the 68% of our sample was using 5-MeO-DMT for spiritual exploration. Okay, so these were these were people that were not necessarily trying to heal, um, you know, mental health issues or physical health issues, but really just trying to explore their own consciousness. Yes, I think so. Although, you know, some people may uh, want to use something um, spiritually in the hopes that it could improve uh, certain conditions that they have. So I, I think that um, even though someone may say, well, I did it for spiritual exploration, that doesn't rule out, um, you know, some other seeking of other benefits as well. Sure. Uh, some people like myself included have gone into ceremony wanting to work on a number of different things. Exactly. Yeah. But, but in terms of what people were reporting, you know, uh, the majority were, were seeking this out specifically for spiritual exploration. Okay. Um, and, and, and uh, five, five MEO in the literature has been described by a lot of people as being one of the most powerful um, psychedelic compounds Um and I've had a little bit of experience with it, not too much, um, which, you know, this is one area of exploration I'd like to continue with on my journey. Um, but it's, it's fascinating that you mentioned that, that those who 
have engaged in 5-MeO work for spiritual purposes have indicated um, similar uh, experiences to those uh, well-published studies for psilocybin. You know, we know very well now that psilocybin is a great facilitator of spiritual experience, even in people who have never had a spiritual experience or any experience with psychedelics. And it's great to hear that, you know, other compounds are being explored for this reason. Um, this is one of the main reasons why I feel like these medicines could be a benefit to the general population and not just disordered individuals, but because, you know, as holistic beings, we have a very real spiritual aspect to ourselves and it's difficult sometimes with what we're afforded here, what's available to us in the, in the West to be able to explore that. Um, and I, you know, for me personally, I feel like the exploration of consciousness is a God given right um, or a source given right. And we should all be exploring it um, as much as possible um, to better understand who we are and what our place is in this um, reality, in this dimension that we're experiencing. So I found that fascinating for sure. Uh, I don't have much experience with the mescaline work. Um, I actually, I, I can't, um, can't say I've even tried that medicine even once, but it's an, again, another area I'd like to explore. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about um, what, what uh, prompted your reasons for wanna, wanting to do research on the mescaline uh, in particular? Well, I mean, I, I would say, I was invited onto the project. So I think part of it was opportunity uh, was, you know, yeah, I mean, opportunity and, and wanting to support um, the other researchers that, that were you know, having the idea behind it. But I think the main motivation and, and passion behind it is that there is very little data on the usage of mescaline, uh, which would, in, you know, including, you know, synthetic mescaline or, um, the use of peyote or San Pedro cactus, um, you know, these are all uh, different forms that people use uh, that contain mescaline. So I think the a big idea was to, um, to be able to get a better understanding of how many people are using mescaline. What, what are the forms of mescaline that are, that are most common that are, um, most being used and, and what kinds of effects in general is mescaline having on people who use it? So that's something I'm interested in since I have no experience in it. Uh, what are some of the things that people are reporting as um, positive benefits or even, you know, um, effects, you know, positive or negative as they're, as they are perceived, but uh, what are some of the effects of the mescaline? Well, we don't know because I mean we just uh, we just started gathering data for that, okay. so we won't know until we start uh, analyzing uh, the data from from that study. But you know, it's a study that's currently underway. I'd be happy to to send you the link if people are interested in um, in contributing to the the survey. But yeah, as of right now, we don't we don't really know because there hasn't been any research on it. Yeah. And that that's astounding. Um, you know, as, as I've read into the history of psychedelics, you know, I commonly come across mescaline being described as, you know, one of the most ancient medicines that humans have engaged with, um, you know, going back many thousands of years to um, South American tribes and, and things like that and, and other um, 
native tribes using it, and yet there's very little research on it. It just is really surprising to me that um, you know all these all these other plants have been researched, but something like that that has such a robust um, experiential literature has not been uh, researched scientifically. Yeah, I find that really interesting too, and I I think there could be a few different reasons for it. I think that it's possible that, um, you know, that when LSD was discovered and around the same time that LSD was discovered, uh, psilocybin was as well, you know, uh, and psilocybin, uh, Albert Hoffman synthesized LSD. He also synthesized psilocybin. And I think that with the discovery of these drugs uh, and they were, when they were described, if you look in the literature, a lot of uh, the descriptions basically use uh, this form of measurement called mescaline units. I don't know if you've come across that. No, I haven't. Um, yeah. So, th- so they, they basically said that, you know, um, I, I forget the exact conversion rate, but there, there was a paper that was published and you can read and see the conversion rate. So they essentially were saying that, you know, uh, mescaline, LSD, and psilocybin basically do the same things, but they have different ratios of potency, which we know, you know, LSD is a highly potent psychedelic. But, um, but I think that when LSD was discovered, um, they almost, mescaline was kind of forgotten, kind of went by the wayside. And for, I think for various reasons, one of them being that, uh, you know, the dose of mescaline is considerably high compared to many other psychedelics. Uh, it might be the highest dose uh, of a psychedelic required to have uh, an effect, you know, where, you know, a, a dose of mescaline is anywhere between 200 and 500 milligrams. So uh, when you could instead of using something that requires such a high dose, you could use something that only required a hundred micrograms and you could have a pretty comparable effect. So I, I assume that that may be part of it. Um, But then, you know, you also have, you know, uh, Sasha Shulgin who synthesized, um, you know, substitute phenethylamines, which were inspired by mescaline, you know, Sasha Shulgin, um, he, it was his first experience with mescaline was what inspired him to revisit MDMA. Um, and he, you know, synthesized MDMA because he realized how similar it was structurally to mescaline. And, uh, and then he went on to make 2CB, 2CE, 2CC, all, all those, uh, you know, 2C compounds and, and so on and so forth. You have the whole TCAL and PCAL to, to, you have mescaline to thank for all of that. So I, I think that those would be some of the potential reasons why um, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think the truth is that uh, people still use it. And, you know, with more and more interest in, in shamanic traditions and people working with plant medicines, um, you know, it seems that mescaline is still a part of, um, you know, ceremony work. Yeah, certainly. I, I see it. Uh, I see ceremonies popping up um, here and there for it. Um, yeah, it's just it's the way you describe it uh, kind of falling by the wayside. But all these other um, 
compounds sort of being inspired by uh, the initial work with mescaline, it makes me picture almost like, uh, you know, all these current musicians right now, you know, many, many thousands of bands who have been inspired by the Beatles. Um, and yet it, it would be like as if, um, you know, the Beatles were discovered and then people forgot about them and yet their impact on the way music is now today and, and how we, what we consider good music um, is due to, you know, this, this, this entity that was uh, sort of forgotten or lost in the past. Yeah. I think that's a great metaphor. Definitely. Very nice. Um, so uh, uh, I had a, personal question about 5-MeO. I, I had a discussion with a friend recently uh, about uh, 5-MeO and we were discussing how short acting it is, you know, 15 to 30 minute experience and then you're back to baseline. Um, but how uh, a normal 5-MeO session could be possibly extended, like extended state uh, 5-MeO sessions, maybe with, um, I believe it was the compound Harmal was a Harmaline something like that um, being uh, or just some sort of uh, adjunct um, molecule or, or plant material being incorporated into the ingestion or the intake of 5-MeO to extend the state. Um, have you gotten any reports from your research as far as like people combining different um, chemical compounds, some psychoactive, some not to get uh, better effects or longer? Uh, well, what we do know is that some of the only uh, deaths from 5-MeO-DMT have come from the combination of 5-MeO-DMT with harmala alkaloids, and harmaline is a harmala alkaloid. So um, that combination would be very dangerous to do and uh, could, cause, you know, could, could cause a potential heart attack or uh, serotonin. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Sorry, we lost you on the on the call. We're using the uh, the telephone to do this this interview. So sorry to the listeners, um, but yeah, you were getting into the potential dangers of combining harmaline and five meo, um, and then I think that's where we cut off. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So that um, there's a, there is a paper. Um, I believe the the researcher's name is Shen, and they wrote a paper on the. Um, the toxic effects of combining harmala alkaloids with 5-MeO-DMT. And so, so in particular, that in particular is, is a danger, a pretty dangerous combination. Um, and, you know, there are reports of people that have done it and survived, um, but it doesn't seem like a risk that's worth taking. Uh, granted that, using 5-MeO-DMT via different routes of administration can change the duration of effect considerably. So, um, you know, it's, uh, if you read Ralph Metzner's book, The Toad and the Jaguar, he talks about how when he first started working with 5-MeO-DMT, they were primarily using it uh, through vaporization. And then over time, he transitioned to using it uh, insufflated because he found that the, the time that people had in the experience was extended. And so, um, so it, I think that you know, it's, it's a molecule that doesn't really play well with other 
molecules. It really demands a lot of uh, respect and, um, and it seems best when used on its own. Hmm. I've also heard of combinations um, like 5-MeO and combo, um, you know, to, I don't know much about combo. It's another compound I don't have any experience with. Um, but it seems like uh, there's, there's definitely a subset of um, psychonauts who, who enjoy combining molecules um, for synergistic effects, things like that. And there's also subsets of people who like to um, just take one at a time and fully embrace uh, what, you know, what each particular compound has to offer um, without, you know, extra chatter, extra noise from other compounds. Um, I just find that interesting. There's sort of uh, multiple camps on, and there's no, you know, perfect way to do it. You know, there's, there's ways that have been researched. There's research protocol ways. There's shamanic ways to do these things. There's, um, you know, any number of ways and people have their own routines and, and set and settings that they like. And, uh, I feel like as long as you can derive, um, therapeutic or, you know, um, personal growth value from these medicines, um, you know, making sure that you're staying safe. I, I think the patterns in which people use them is, um, you know, it doesn't have to be standardized necessarily. You know what I mean? I don't think that it needs to be standardized, but I think it's really important for people to realize that 5-MeO-DMT does not have a history, a long history of human use. There isn't a good understanding of, of what it does and, uh, you know, the impacts that it can have in the long term. And that there have been uh, reported deaths with certain combinations. So, um, so I think that, you know, when you talk about, you know, it doesn't matter as much, you know, how people do it, as long as they're staying safe. I think one of the criteria for staying safe is using it on its own. You know, I think that as soon as people start introducing other substances, um, they greatly narrow the margin of safety with, with this particular compound. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And I think the same thing goes for, you know, Western prescription medications or, um, or even over the counter medications. If you're taking multiple things all at once, um, you know, we don't even know what the, uh, what the cross effects are going to be, you know, and how they're going to influence each other. Um, and unfortunately that's how a lot of people, um, overdose on prescription meds is they, they may combine two things that they're not supposed to. Uh, I know in my own work with addictions, you know, I work a lot with, um, opiate and heroin, um, addicts who are trying to recover. And we had, we, we often put them on, um, Suboxone, which is an opiate replacement, uh, for medication assisted therapy. And one of the big, um, no-nos is to combine Suboxone with, uh, benzodiazepines, and that's, that's usually when we notice deaths from Suboxone and almost the only time we notice deaths from that um, because, you know, that, that combination just happens to depress the respiratory system enough that people just stop breathing in their sleep um, and it becomes extremely dangerous. So when people are combining multiple things with no knowledge of how their body's going to respond, you really are rolling the dice, aren't you? Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I want to, um, I want to, ask you a little bit because you just started this uh this recent job at innate path in denver and um i'm super excited for you man that's exactly the kind of work you wanted to 
to be doing and um, some of the work that I hope to be doing in the future too. And I was hoping that you could uh, let the audience know sort of what innate path is, what sort of treatments you guys do and um, how people can get signed up with you guys. Uh, as far as I know, you guys are doing both cannabis and ketamine assisted therapies, which are both legal here in the state of Colorado. Um, and there's, you know, vast amount of research on both of these types of uh, clinical protocols for, uh, uh, you know, any number of things from addiction to, to mental health issues like PTSD and depression to spiritual enhancement to all sorts of things. Um, but I was hoping that you might be able to provide, um, you know, provide a good ex uh, perspective from being inside the clinic. Sure. Um, so yeah, like you said, uh, innate path is a cannabis and ketamine assisted therapy clinic. Um, we work primarily with a body-based somatic modality. And what that means is that we use tend to try to use lower doses of cannabis or ketamine, um, which the clients self-administer. So we're not you know, we're not administering or, or prescribing um, these medicines. The, the ketamine is prescribed through a, a third-party prescriber. And, um, and the, the cannabis is, you know, you know, in Colorado, you go to a dispensary and you buy cannabis, which is wonderful. Um, and so people come into the session and, and they will medicate. But the goal is to medicate at a level where, access to the body is still possible and to the point where access to the body is enhanced. And so the idea is that um, by focusing on the body and the use of these medicines help to reduce the activity of, of the rational mind or the, you know, the logical construct and, and kind of moves that to the side and allows access to the subconscious and much like the body has its ability to heal cuts or, or bruises or, or even broken bones, the mind also has an innate ability to heal itself. And a lot of those for self-healing are located in the self-conscious and uh, subconscious. And so when we remove, start removing the blockages towards that innate ability for healing, then that healing can happen. And so we, uh, we really put a lot of focus on the relationship between the client and the therapist. And we find that um, the element of relationship is incredibly important as people begin to come up to these blockages and that it's through the relationship and through uh, feelings of safety in that relationship, that, that real deep um, integrated healing can happen and it begins to have incredible implications for people's lives. And, and it does transform people's lives over the course of the, the treatment. Hmm. Do you think that people um, necessarily need a, you know, need to have a prerequisite foundation in like mindfulness skills in order to, to make the most of these sessions or um, are these sessions really for, for anybody, uh, any experience level? Um, these sessions are for anybody. We provide a lot of psychoeducation and we provide a lot of preparatory work um, that, you know, this, this type of work is, is really unique and very few people have 
experience. You know, I think there are some people who have uh, maybe have done, you know, some kind of somatic work or, um, you know, sometimes meditation can be helpful, but um, general, I think that this really is, is for anyone and, and typically is best uh, for people who have an open mind and, and are willing to, to learn and, and to, um, to do hard work because it is hard work ultimately. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, people I talk to who don't have any experience but are interested in it um, sometimes have a misconception that these um, psychedelic compounds or plant medicines might be, you know, some sort of magic pill where they just take it and all of a sudden, you know, the medicine does its work and they're healed. But, uh, you know, we also know that um, it, you know, it's not necessarily that the medicine heals you. Yeah, there are probably some some components of the actual medicine doing some of the healing, but a lot of it is through the, you know, the turning inward and the uncovering of patterns and, um, you know, negative or maladaptive uh, habitual patterns of living. And then the pointing out of that and the facing of, of ourselves and then, you know, integrating that afterwards. And there's a lot of work and a lot of uh, hard things that we have to take a look at through this kind of work. Um, it's not for the timid. Um, it's definitely ego shattering and it, it can be scary at times to face the darkest parts of ourselves. But I've found anyway through, through my work with some of these medicines that um, it's because um, I'm given the opportunity to face those parts of myself um, that I grow the most. And Unfortunately, you know, I'm unable to access those darkest parts of myself um, without some of these medicines. Sometimes, you know, I have really, really good mental defense mechanisms. And I think a lot of people do, you know, when we start to think about, you know, what's wrong with us and, and why, what do we need to change about ourselves to be better human beings, more compassionate, whatever. Um, and then we come to some potential answers uh, that scare us, you know, and that turns a lot of people off. And, you know, my defense mechanisms go up and say, you know, no, I'm not even going to go there. Not going to consider that, that that's wrong with me. Um, but these medicines almost, you know, force you to sit down like a parent and, and they point out to you exactly what, what you need to be shown in order to make positive change and show you both, you know, what, what it's going to turn out to be like if you continue with negative behavior and what it could potentially turn out to be if you change that behavior. Uh, and that's like you said, one of those, um, one of those magical things about these compounds is that it opens up those gateways or those channels for us to be able to explore that stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, the way that we work is, is a little bit different from, from what you were just describing in that, you know, we aren't, uh, it's not the medicine that's, that's kind of sitting people down and, and telling them what to look at or what to do. But, but um, the medicine is just, more of a tool to uh to to kind of soften some of the the logical defenses as you were describing like it helps kind of um you know quiet those down a little bit and that way we can access the subconscious which is you know it's it's inherently a part of of all of us but more than more than looking at patterns and and figuring out what what they do and, and how they connect and things like that. That's, that's more of a, a rational, logical approach. And that's a cognitive based approach. Um, 
our approach is more about just feeling um, unfelt emotions in the system and using the therapeutic relationship as a tool to help provide corrective experiences for, um, you know, particularly uh, times that have created these patterns like you described. Um, we're supporting a different kind of experience that can allow people to have a new map for what has been missing in their lives. And so that helps to integrate more pieces of the individual and ultimately uh, allows for these kind of dissociated parts of self to come back into a full integrated person. Well, that's awesome. Um, and you mentioned, you know, a lot of, you know, you guys are somatic based. So a lot of it is, or it's, it's almost all about feeling and connecting with the body, um, which makes sense why you would want to go with lower doses, uh, especially with the ketamine. Um, for our listeners who don't know, ketamine is a disassociative hypnotic. So um, in my experience with it, it literally, um, you know, in a sense, disconnects the mind from the body um, completely, severs that connection at um, higher doses, allowing uh, for the full exploration of the mind and the consciousness space without um, being tethered to the... Um, I guess the distracting somatic parts of, of the body experience. So it makes sense why you'd want to go with a lower dose in your clinic, being that you're somatically based. Um, but that's interesting that, that you said people will use their medicine and then come into you guys um, to hold the session. Um, how do you, and I'm just curious, how do most people? Well, no, okay. no, no, they, they, they take the medicine in in the session they don't right, take they, it outside but they bring it in themselves right they source it themselves and then bring it in well the cannabis they would get from a dispensary and the the ketamine is prescribed by a medical doctor and then for the prescriptions that these that these folks are getting from um doctors for the ketamine what um what method of administration is is uh, do you commonly see in your in your practice could you, could you say that again? Yeah. Um, being that the ketamine is prescribed, um, what method of administration do most of your clients um, engage in in the office with the ketamine? I mean, is it, uh, you said they self-administer. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's kind of difficult for me to imagine people uh, injecting ketamine intermuscularly or intravenously themselves in an office. Right. Um, yeah, primarily the route of administration is sublingual. So there are, there are like lozenges that people use and they can put it under their tongue and that allows for people to um, have the, this very similar kind of experience that you would have with a, you know, intramuscular administration. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. And I've also heard of another route of administration, uh, like an inhaler form as well. Have you seen that come around? I haven't heard of that, um, but it seems like that might be complicated form. I haven't I haven't heard of that personally. Okay, I've heard of I've heard of people using a um, a nasal spray, but not an inhaler. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm referring to. Um, 
maybe I just got the, you know, the two things mis- mixed up in my head. You know, I'm thinking inhaling through the nose, um, through an inhaler, like a nasal thing. Interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, with your, with your clinic, um, recently, I think it was just yesterday. I got a little Facebook message that you guys are starting up a new training program that I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about for, um, people or clinicians who are interested in becoming, um, educated in, uh, psychedelic assisted therapies and being able to do what you do. Well, um, so we're, we're starting an externship program and, um, you know, it's a multi-weekend based psychedelic, uh, trauma training. Um, it's based on the curriculum of trauma dynamics, which is, um, a modality that's, that's been around for many years. Um, and so, you know, where the, the condition with the externship is availability for full-time employment at the end. Um, and, you know, the ability to gain licensure as a, a therapist in Colorado is necessary. Um, and yeah, it's a really exciting, um, new part of, of the clinic as it expands and, you know, we begin to, provide another route for people to get involved in this kind of work, especially those who have gone through the training to be therapists and, um, and want to be, you know, involved with a a modality that is in some ways much more accessible than, than some other psychedelic medicines. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the training in somatics could be, useful not only for uh, psychedelic assisted therapies, but also for breathwork uh, type therapies as well. Definitely. I mean, somatic work is, it translates to just about any form of uh, healing work. And I, I think that as more research comes out, I think we're going to find that somatic therapy is going to be a in many ways superior to cognitive based approaches uh, because it bypasses so many of the defense mechanisms that are inherent with uh, cognitive strategies. Yeah, that's really interesting. Most of my training comes from um, cognitive based strategies uh, with human performance enhancement through mental training um, so it's in, and you're you're absolutely right. You know, way more defense mechanisms. Our mind is is an amazing machine. Um, it's an amazing thing for for self discovery and for personal growth. But it's also really really good at um, protecting us um, from things. It's also good at filtering things out that it thinks is is not um, relevant to our personal experience. And it's also really good at putting up defense mechanisms. Um, for, for change or, you know, to break habits or habitual uh, thinking patterns that we might have. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky, uh, tricky thing that we're trying to explore here. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And I think that when it comes to therapeutic work, if we can just take the tricky thing out of the equation, we can get to the heart of the matter, both, uh, you know, both metaphorically and literally, um, because I think that a lot of the problems that we end up with are based in the heart. They're not, they're not really, the, the mind responds to the pain in the heart, but 
I think a lot of what ails us comes from the heart. And so if we can just kind of put the mind to the side and if we can just focus on the body and, and if we really consider that the body, the systems that are present in the body are way, way older than the prefrontal cortex. You know, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that was, that evolved last. And so it's the youngest part of the brain, but somehow it usurps the most power. It is the part of the brain, like you said, it, it, um, it, it protects us, but it also filters out whatever it thinks is useless. And, um, you know, it makes a lot of split second decisions, especially, um, you know, in those, in those times where, you know, it's trying to anticipate things in the future. So, um, so if we kind of like start learn to feel into our bodies more, we can start to feel into the, the, what I would consider an ancient wisdom that's been evolving for, um, for thousands of years, if not longer. And so, if, so then we can draw upon that as the source of, of healing and balance and regulation. Um, then that regulation can translate into these younger parts of the mind that are um, kind of, in a sense, have usurped power and, and can be calmed down by these deeper, more wise systems that um, can provide a better foundation. Hmm. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, with, as far as like when you were talking about the history of the prefrontal cortex versus the, the history of the human body as a system um, and the system being much older, um, have you ever heard of a book called uh, The Body Keeps Score? Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a great uh, that's, book. Yeah, it's a, an amazing book. And, and a lot of the work that, that we do at Innate Path is, uh, you know, is very, very similar and based on a lot of the principles that uh, Vander Kolk talks about in his book. Yeah, so for some of our listeners that might not be familiar with the book, um, you know, in, in this book, The Body Keeps Score, the author talks about how the body um, has its, you know, it almost has like a mind of its own and it can, um, has memory, you know, it remembers uh, certain traumas, it remembers uh, certain exciting experiences, and it forms its own associations with these, um, these feelings based on, you know, what's going on in the body as well as what's going on in the, in the, um, immediate environment around the body and how even years later, you know, if someone experiences a significant trauma in their, in their younger years, uh, their mind or their, their consciousness may have either forgotten it or repressed it or denied it or, you know, totally forgotten about it. But that, you know, in the 30, in someone's thirties or forties, um, the body still remembers. And if those conditions come about again, uh, in which the original trauma was, initiated in the body, then the body could trigger a similar response to the trauma because it has this almost like a, you know, a muscle memory or an emotional memory of, of that traumatic experience. And, um, you know, reading about, you know, how we can heal those things, trying to trace it back to the original trauma and reprocess it through the body and, and things like that was just fascinating. Yeah. 
it's a, I, I definitely think that as we continue to, to pay more attention to our bodies and pay more attention to how trauma affects our bodies, I think that we'll start to see just how much impact these early experiences have had on the patterns that repeat themselves throughout our lives over and over again in our attempts to understand or reprocess the trauma, but a lot of times end up traumatizing further. And so, so I think that, you know, doing this kind of work can help interrupt that pattern. And, you know, I like, I really like the, the, the term uh, corrective experience. You know, if we can provide corrective experiences, then, um, then there's, there's an ability, a new path that can be formed in the mind. And then the individual can start to identify with this other way of being. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. Have you, uh, do you guys integrate any, um, any ideas from like Stan Groff's uh, holotropic techniques? No, we are, we don't really use a lot of the, I mean, although sometimes there can be some transpersonal elements that, that are, that happen in the sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not, uh, we don't use the transpersonal experience as the primary mode of change. Uh, a lot of times the transpersonal types of experiences can almost be like a bypass or, uh, you know, just, it, just such experiences that are so far removed from the, the waking consciousness that it, that the, the integration process is, you know, a bit unfeasible for someone who is um, not well grounded and, and supported. So it, it makes more sense to, to really be working from a grounded, integrated perspective and, um, and use that to gradually work through these, um, you know, kind of, like you said, there's these parts that, that are kind of forgotten about. So we, we would talk about that being uh, a dissociation. So we have the, these things that are in dissociation, dissociation come out of dissociation and, um, you know, the, the experience that a child has, um, has no solution because that child is, is helpless, but an adult has a, a lot more resource. The adult can make decisions for him or herself. Um, and so that, that shift and the ability to bring that, di- uh, dissociated child um, can then be brought into association with the adult mind and the adult uh, personality, which can provide a solution to that event. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I think my most profound <laughs> soma- uh, experience with somatic therapy. Um, and the reason why I ask about Groff is because it was, it was in a, a workshop that I did with Stan Groff at that psychedelic conference um, where, you know, he talked to us a lot about his methods and then ran us through one of his um, holotropic breathwork sessions. And part of the uh, therapy that he did was very somatic in which, you know, during these holotropic breathworks, um, people would be having their, their psychedelic visionary experiences, but a lot of them were processing old traumas through, um, you know, expressed, uh, 
somatic experience. So, uh, you know, I remember for me, you know, there was a significant back arching and muscle tightening and things like that. Um, but some of the other people, as I looked around the room, were having, um, you know, very somatic, uh, pains or, or experiences in their bodies where they're holding trauma and Stan Groff would, would come up and, um, it was interesting because he would apply more pressure to these areas of discomfort and by applying more pressure, um, and maybe, um, encouraging the participant to, to engage in more mindfulness or awareness around that sensation in that part of the body. And then he would release the somatic intervention that he was doing. And immediately the people would, would feel, um, like their, their trauma had been released. So it, it almost seemed counterintuitive to me, um, you know, intellectually that if you apply more pressure to an area of pain, then, uh, I mean, I would think that that would cause more pain, but in these cases, when people were in state in these altered states, um, re-experiencing the trauma, um, and then he'd put more pressure on it. It would, it would, it would relieve the pain, you know? So almost like, uh, you know, you need to go towards that feeling, turn towards that pain, um, really, really feel it at its depths. And then what you find is that, um, it really, um, maybe has a quality of nothingness or, or a quality of, um, you know, you can, you can, um, you can conceptualize the pain differently. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that's that that's definitely one way of working with it and and understanding it. Okay, so what what would be like an example of like a somatic intervention that you guys might do as facilitators uh, at your clinic? If someone was was experiencing um, some somatic uh, pain or trauma, um, you know, during a session. Well, um, it would be you know rather than applying pressure. I think it would be more encouraging someone to pay more attention to that pain mm-hmm. or pay more attention to the, the tension or pay more attention to whatever uh, sensation is present and allowing that sensation to grow until, um, until it, it just continues to grow until it, it does, it shifts into something. Um, and that at, you know, that that's so different for so many different people. And, you know, it's just whatever is there, it's something that needs attention. And so we just give it attention until it emerges either as a memory or as a, uh, you know, a physical experience, or, I mean, it, it can be a wide range of things that can emerge from that. Um, but yeah, rather than, you know, putting pressure or, or something like that, we just continue to, to give it attention without questioning it or judging it or anything like that, but just allowing it to, and then allowing whatever emotions are there with it to, to come up to. Yeah, I think that that's probably um, underlying a lot of the approaches with Western psychotherapies as well. Um that's, that's something that I certainly encourage my clients to do, you know, whether they're dealing with, um, you know, depression or anxiety or, or, um, you know, physical chronic pain or something. Um, and they're not using these medicines, but maybe just psychotherapy. Um, I might teach them some mindfulness based techniques to enhance their ability to focus and attune to, and be more aware of, um, their body, certain body parts, their, their thought content, their emotional content, maybe teach someone uh, how to body scan 
and then encourage them when they're feeling that to give themselves the space to sit down, um, maybe meditate on it if they're meditators, but even if they're not meditators, you know, instead of trying to escape the feeling, escape the depression, escape the anxiety through distracting away uh, or turning away from or medicating or something like that, instead turning towards it and allowing themselves with compassion, you know, the space to sit with that and go towards it a little bit. Um, because what, what we tend to find is if you go towards these things rather than go away from, like you said, you, it's something that needs attention. And when you finally give it that attention, um, it gives it the space to resolve itself. Yeah. Or, or to, or to find solution. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm so glad you guys are offering that externship training program. Um, because, you know, as far as I, I'm aware, there's only a few psychedelic assisted therapy training programs out there. Um, I believe um, MAPS is associated with the, uh, the sort of what, what's considered the gold standard tra- training program right now um, through CIIS in California. Um, I think they have a full curriculum and, and certification program for that. Um, but also, you know, I've, I've heard of your guys externship, which is great. I've also heard of, um, a new future, um, potential through maps as well. That might be, um, might be facilitated through the wholeness center up here in Fort Collins, which is also a, a ketamine assisted therapy clinic. Um, and maps may hold a psychedelic assisted training up here as well. Um, so it's great that, that they're kind of, um, you know, this, this is a, it's an, it's an interesting and emerging thing. And there's definitely um, a call for it um, from a lot of people who are seeking these types of treatments. Oh, what do you think about the, uh, the potential for psilocybin to be decriminalized soon? Do you think that might um, extend your guys practice out into that realm as well? I, I think that that would be a really exciting, um, you know, thing dimension to consider. I think that, one of the things that's really fascinating about, uh, you know, cannabis being accessible to everyone is that, um, you know, that kind of therapy is really uh, affordable. You know, um, we're, we're looking with the MDMA therapy, we're looking at, you know, for, for three MDMA sessions, we're looking at, um, you know, $12,000. For you know something like that, so it it would be you know even though MDMA therapy is is right around the corner, it's going to be so expensive that uh, it's hard to imagine how that's going to be paid for. And so for therapies like uh, you know cannabis, for example, which is you know highly accessible, it's uh, it's has a reasonable cost and um you know and the therapy itself because it's you know it's it's a it's a two-hour session um it's something that that has a much more reasonable cost and i think that um you know it's it's exciting to consider that and and i think with the psilocybin initiative or the the mushroom initiative in denver uh it's another way that that people may have access to medicine um, that would be much more uh, cost effective than something like um, 
MDMA or, or even, you know, synthetic psilocybin, which would probably be very expensive. Yeah. And in my experience, uh, cause I've, I've gone to, um, the wholeness center for ketamine therapy before just to, to try out that, um, methodology. I was, I was interested in it. Um, but those treatments are even pretty expensive too. And most insurances don't cover them yet. Um, I know that the VA has been making, um, strides in, in, uh, covering, um, some ketamine therapies, um, or medication assisted therapies like that for their veterans, um, at a number of clinics. Uh, one of my friends got, got funded through the VA to do that and he didn't have to pay for a single session. But for me, um, I think I had to pay like $400 out of pocket per session, something like that. So it was still cost prohibitive to, um, to be able to do it in the type of, um, sequencing and protocol that the research, uh, has found to be most effective. Um, so yeah, I see what you mean. Um, Cool. Um, well, I was wondering if, uh, I mean, cause you, you have, you know, kind of both feet right now in the realm of, um, psychedelics and consciousness exploration. And not only are you a practitioner, but you're also a researcher in this field. And you also, um, are on the board of directors for a great organization that I hope you could talk a little bit about to our audience. Um, and, you know, I don't know as much, obviously, as you do about it, but as, as far as I know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an organization, um, it's a grant-based organization that provides funding for um, psychedelic studies and research. Um, so if like people want to conduct these studies through their university or something, and they need to find funding sources for it, you guys help connect them with, with uh, grants. Is that correct? Yeah, so we are a, a, a grant organization, um, and so we provide grants to graduate students who are wanting to do uh, research projects uh, regarding psychedelics. And so, um, so that, that's open to any academic discipline from, you know, uh, social sciences to humanities to, uh, you know, chemistry and uh, neurobiology or biology. Uh, so any, any realm of study, as long as it has something to do with psychedelics, um, you know, we definitely consider funding that project. Uh, we have different levels of funding. So, you know, three, I think we have three or four different tiers. And, um, and so yeah, uh, our first round of grants came out recently. And if you go to the website, sourceresearchfoundation.org, you can look at all the really cool projects that we're currently funding. And, um, and as those projects get to completion, we'll also be sharing those findings on, on the website and promoting the work of those students. Wow. It's such an amazing time to be alive in this country. Um, you know, because, you know, we're so, you know, I consider you and I to be lucky to be sort of here and present and, and aware of, of these compounds and this research, um, right as, uh, the prohibition on psychedelic research is beginning to lift. And, um, you know, we're getting a lot more clearance through, uh, regulatory agencies to be doing this kind of research. The government agencies are becoming a little more, um, 
app to to allow us to have access to these chemicals for research. Um, it seems like, you know, definitely it seems like uh, among the general population, there's like a a mass shift in consciousness towards, you know, positive growth. Um, but it's, it's most surprising and most, um, hopeful for me to see that even legislators, um, especially in our state, uh, legislators and, um, all sorts of politicians starting to open their minds to the potential that, um, you know, these medicines do need to be studied and possibly, um, some major overhauls need to need to happen to the, uh, the scheduling system of our drug classifications here in this country. Uh, do you see that as well? Um, I mean, there's tons of conferences popping up all over the place for these types of research. And um, it's just so amazing that we're alive during this time. I agree. It's, it's a very exciting time to be alive. And, um, you know, and I, I think another part of the, the source research foundation mission is to diversify the academic, um, I guess, the academic set of researchers to uh, to bring in, you know, uh, more people of color, to bring in uh, people from diff- various ethnic backgrounds, from different socioeconomic classes, and and to really, we need a diversification of of all science. But I think you know, psychedelic science has been so uh, you know the white anglo-saxon male paradigm that i think you know bringing more uh, diversity more females more uh, lgbtqia um, members and you know people who identify and uh you know people from various ethnic backgrounds i think all of those things are so important because these all these varied backgrounds are going to give a much richer community and are going to much better represent a a world that is unified rather than a world that is uh, that continues to perpetuate uh, you know separation and um, and classification absolutely you know at the basis of a lot of this work in in psychedelics and, and consciousness exploration is this unification, you know, and it's, it, it's, you know, at its basis, a lot of it is um, about reestablishing connection um, and bridging a lot of the divides that have been created by um, cultural programming or, you know, uh, wars or greed or personal interest or any number of um, things that are going on in our, in our species right now. Um, it's interesting you bring up the diversification and that's so, uh, important. Callie and I went to, um, a conference out in Detroit, the Detroit psychedelic conference a couple of years ago. And we got a, you know, a firsthand taste of that where we were situated in the middle of Detroit and she and I were maybe, we were two of maybe four white people at the entire conference. Um, it was primarily African-American, um, from a variety of different spiritual traditions, um, about half the conference, um, presenters were female. Um, and it was so fascinating to get, um, the totally different perspective on what psychedelic work could be and what, uh, what this is all about. And they would bring in, you know, everything from, um, experiential evidence from, um, 
you know, drumming to uh, tribal practices to um, traditional shamanism to uh, incorporating psychedelic medicines into birthing practices um, and, you know, all sorts of fascinating um, I guess, viewpoints on how we could approach these things. And after leaving that conference, my, my mind was just blown open to um, all sorts of potentials that have been out there and have been been present for a long, long time, but maybe I had been sheltered to, or, or maybe those perspectives had not been given the proper voice uh, or platform to be able to share those things. So I was very grateful to have that experience. And it's great that you're doing that intentionally through, um, the source research foundation. Yeah. I, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a, I'm honored to be a part of it. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's a beautiful vision that, that Alan has that he's, uh, you know, he's put together and he's brought together such a, an amazing board of directors and a diverse team in a variety of, of, uh, you know, parts of the field, both academics and non-academics. And so, um, you know, I, and I, it seems that that movement is gaining traction in the general psychedelic um, community, so to speak. I think that, you know, we're starting to see more and more conferences like the conference you described in Detroit. And, um, and that makes me feel really happy to see and, and to know that, more people are being invited uh, in, into these spaces. And I think that, you know, the more that we can eliminate this kind of um, the separation that has been there. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think that, that this is the cultural and societal level of healing, which, which involves acceptance of one another and it involves an acknowledgement of, of hurt that's been caused and uh, a mutual desire to move forward in, in a positive direction. So, um, so, you know, my hope is that this, this continues to move forward, that we continue to see diverse voices on podcasts, on stages, in academia, um, and that, you know, we, those who are privileged and in, in positions of privilege can continue to, to reach that handout and, you know, to, to bring other voices who are equally um, capable and equally qualified to, to pursue those passions and, and to bring that to their communities. So I definitely, definitely support that. And it's beautiful to hear that that you were able to experience that conference firsthand. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was just, um, you know, my realization that there was just so much value um, to what they had to bring to the table that, um, that I had not uh, been exposed to in, you know, like you said, um, an ethnocentric, uh, even my college experience was, you know, primarily, you know, um, white males teaching the classes Um or white, you know, even white females, there was not too much diversity as far as ethnicity, um, in my education. So it was, it was a pleasure and it was an honor to, to be a part of that. Um, so ref, I mean, you're, you're right. Like I said, you're right in really the, you're right in the mix of all of what's going on right now in psychedelic research. I was wondering if you might be able to share what you feel is some of the, like the new and exciting, um, psychedelic research that's happening now or that is uh, 
right on the cusp of, of happening and what, what we can all look forward to um, possibly reading about in the near future? Well, for me, some of the areas that I'm really excited is to see more research being done on the impact of therapeutic relationship or therapeutic alliance in psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, I think that we've gotten a good amount of evidence that you know the the psychedelics themselves have beneficial impacts, but we don't quite know what percentage of that is a drug effect. What percentage of that is the you know the the sense of community that the participants in these research studies are experiencing? So. Um, I'm excited. I, I have heard murmurings that that is something that people are more and more interested in. And that's definitely something that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, well, there's definitely, you know, I think, sorry, there's definitely an impetus to, to begin that research. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of research done with general psychotherapy showing that, you know, up to 40% of the positive outcomes that come from therapy that the, the clients get is from directly from that therapeutic alliance, that if that relationship is not a good relationship, um, that client, you know, has the potential to lose out on 40% of the potential benefits. Whereas if that alliance is a good, a good fit between the therapist and the client, then, uh, the client's potential for reaching, you know, what they're trying to work on, what their goals are is, is greatly, um, impacted in a positive way. Exactly. I would love to see that be even further validated within the, you know, the psychedelic assisted context, because I think it's so easy for, you know, like you said earlier in the podcast, it's so easy for, for someone to, to latch onto the idea of a magic pill. And I think what part, not only the magic pill is not only alluring because it, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it can fix you quickly, but it's alluring, I think, because it also takes away the, the need for the relationship. And a lot of our pain and suffering is in relationship. And so, you know, the idea of having to work out difficulties with another person, uh, which inherently happens, as you know, in therapy, um, it's... Uh, it's so valuable to have that even further validated, like, yeah, you know, we're human beings and we need relationship. So, um, so I would love to see that because I think that it would continue to, you know, it, it's not going to allow for this to just become another pharmaceutical intervention, but rather it's an opportunity to introduce a multidisciplinary and holistic approach to healing that has been missing from Western medicine for a long time. Yeah. Um, what else do you think is, um, uh, you know, new and exciting and um, in this, in this field of study? Well, um, I think, I think it would be really great to see a, um, see clinical trials with 5-MeO-DMT down the line. I think that would be a really, um, you know, like, like we were talking about earlier with uh, MDMA and psilocybin, one of the kind of drawbacks to those is that, you know, th those sessions are, are pretty long duration sessions. And so to be able to do 
sessions with something like 5-MeO DMT, um, you know, given, you know, uh, to have the opportunity to really run that through some tests and see, okay, you know, is this a, is this a good candidate um, for, for similar applications of psilocybin or MDMA, but to, to have something that is shorter acting like cannabis or ketamine um, that, you know, um, could, could like those other medicines be more accessible. So I think that that's a, uh, an exciting possibility that, you know, as more research comes out, um, there may be opportunities to, to do, you know, a pharmacokinetic safety study or something like that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's something that I definitely look forward to and, and hope that that happens. Um, you know, I think, Overall, I'm just, uh, it's just so exciting to see more and more uh, interlacing of different, you know, uh, different disciplines coming together for these, these studies and, and this kind of research. You know, you have uh, biologists working with, uh, with therapists. And, um, you know, I was not too long ago, I was talking to a neuroimmunologist in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, just us both being able to, to talk about very similar phenomena and, and our knowledge rather than contradicting each other, the knowledge actually reinforcing both sides and enriching both sides and creating a synthesis of information that was way stronger than, the understanding that either side had to begin with. And so I just, I think that that's one of the most beautiful things that, uh, that human minds are capable of is, you know, taking two coming from two different directions and, and creating something that was um, even more reinforced, more beautiful and, and more integrated. And so, yeah, I think that the potential for that is, growing and, and really exciting. Very nice. Um, well, I want to let our listeners know that, uh, you know, my podcast uh, app only allows me to record one hour segments. So we're nearing the end of uh, this time slot, but um, Raf has agreed to continue our conversation for about another um, 30 or 40 minutes. So uh, please stick around for the next segment and um, we will be right back. All right. Am I back with Raf? Yes. Awesome. Um, so thanks to our listeners for sticking around. Um, so Raf and I were talking about new and exciting um, frontiers in this line of research with psychedelics. And Raf, you know, I have to tell you, I have my own ideas as far as, um, you know, where, or, you know, uh, my own ideas and interests in the future of psychedelic research. And I'm hopefully going to be pursuing a PhD here um, very shortly, and it's going to be a long process, but I am already formulating ideas for uh, possible dissertation and future um, research directions for myself in this realm of psychedelics uh, for the, I don't know, for the last 10 years or so, I've, I've had a, a very strong um, pull and a dream to be a psychedelic researcher as a profession. And so that's kind of what I'm what I've been contemplating a lot lately, and, and a lot of my ideas are based off of um, Abraham Maslow's, um, some of his ideas around positive psychology 
And, um, you know, he's, he's more famous for his hierarchy of needs, which some of our listeners might know, but, uh, something a little less known about Maslow is that he felt like, um, there was a, a really strong emphasis in psych psychology and the study of, of the mind and the study of psychology and, and psychotherapy and a, a really strong emphasis on fixing disorders or, um, you know, healing something that was wrong with uh, a human mind. And, um, you know, I kind of ascribe more to Maslow's view that, um, that maybe there's a little too much emphasis on fixing what's wrong and not enough emphasis on uh, developing and maintaining parts of the human uh, parts of the human mind and consciousness that are strong and that are functioning well. And that by focusing on, um, you know, positive aspects and optimizing uh, positive aspects of consciousness that we can, um, you know, move to new levels of human evolution and consciousness. And so some of my own ideas around future uh, new and exciting research in psychedelics and also, you know, influenced because of my background in sport and performance psychology and, and mental optimization. Um, I sort of combine all these, all these ideas uh, from my own history. And, and I've thought of, uh, you know, that maybe the part of the future of mental health and mental health research is um, going to be on preventative measures uh, for mental health in that, you know, if we can either through education or through mental training uh, at a younger age, um, you know, expose youth to ideas around consciousness, get them thinking about uh, what is consciousness and how do they fit into uh, their model of reality with their own mind and their own consciousness and also couple it with maybe some mindfulness and um, emotional resiliency type trainings that we might actually be able to prevent a lot of um, mental health issues later in life and in effect also reduce the overall uh, expenditure of mental health treatments and, um, all sorts of, um, you know, you know, healthcare is expensive when we get older and, uh, if we can cut down in those costs, it'll save a lot of people, a lot of money. And if we can cut down in the incidence of mental health by building, uh, resiliency and emotional intelligence in people, uh, from the, from the onset, then we might be able to prevent a lot of anguish later in life, um, and reduce instances of mental health, um, issues later in life. And I feel like, uh, the exploration of consciousness, the mapping of consciousness, and psychedelic um, research all sort of ties into um, these ideas and and building upon strengths and enhancing uh, the human potential. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there that that uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of the psychedelic research is on studying how it can help and heal disordered behaviors. Um, there's also a few of us out there that are looking um, ahead in a different direction, hoping to do research on how we can enhance the human condition for everybody, uh, not just those who are disordered as well. And I thought I might gather your thoughts on, on what you thought about that. It's not really talked about too much in our circles. So it's rare that I get to talk to someone about these ideas. Yeah, I think it's really exciting, the, the emphasis on positive psychology um, and the idea of preventative measures. Um, that's, that's what you're referring to. Yeah, I think it's, it's very exciting. And I think that the more that we can focus on these preventative measures, I think 
it's going to bring even more ripples of change to our society. And hopefully the way that we um, interact with one another, the way that we run our governments, the way that we, uh, you know, structure uh, the various organizations that, that influence our lives. And uh, so that's, that's a really exciting uh, perspective that you're taking and then direction that you're taking this all of this work. Well, I, I mean, I've been noticing, at least in the physical health realm, um, there's a lot of emphasis these days on preventative measures, preventative health, you know, um, getting wellness checkups, you know, a lot of insurances uh, let people go get uh, wellness checkups on a, on a annually annual basis, um, emphasizing more preventative health in order to save them money, right? Cause the insurance is paying for it. Um, so, I mean, if there's this emphasis in preventative medicine or preventative health in um, a physical sense, I also think that this could also, uh, you know, could bleed into the psychological aspect as well. Um, I think it's a, a, um, an under-researched um, sub-segment of the field. I, I fully agree with you on that. I think that th- the more that we can learn how to prevent these things, I, I think I, I, get the sense that a lot of uh, mental health prevention is going to rely on a change in the way that we interact with one another and the way that we support one another. But I think that uh, as we improve and as we increase our understanding of, of these aspects, I think we can really move forward. Nice. Um, well, I want to switch gears here on you a little bit and kind of take a 90 degree right turn. Um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, psychedelics and, and research and, um, you know, um, clinical type stuff. Um, but I want to switch gears to something that might be a little bit, uh, more salient or present for, uh, a greater number of listeners that are listening right now. And so I kind of want to get your sense, um, and I know this is a big question and feel free to answer it however you want, but um, how do you conceptualize uh, for yourself based on your own experience? Um, how do you conceptualize the nature of consciousness? Um, you know, what it is, how we engage it, um, how it may be structured, um, you know, however you would dig into that question and it can go any number of ways. Um, but how do you conceptualize the nature of consciousness? Well, like you said, that is a huge question that I think would be, I mean, I think I like to think of consciousness as a, a big mystery. And I think that it's a mystery that as soon as one sets upon a path to define and to explain and to, um, grasp it, it becomes ever more elusive. And so I think uh, when I think of this idea of consciousness, I think of um, the phenomenon that I can perceive an I in the present moment uh, that there is, is stillness in the present moment that, you know, that, for example, you know, right now, I'm consciously aware of myself. I can, you know, my voice coming out of my body and uh, 
um, you know, I'm in a room and there's a light on and, you know, there's all these things that I can perceive and there's really no clear explanation for it. You know, I think uh, any attempts to explain that or to conceptualize it, to, um, to make it pretty for my prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that any attempt to do that is um, it distracts from actually being able to witness that mystery. You know, witnessing the mystery is is really experiencing the phenomenon of being right here and right now. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, um, you know, if I were to put it into an athletic context, it's almost like for me, uh, being a jujitsu athlete, it's like uh, being in a match, um, you know, um, versus trying to explain what it's like to be in a match to somebody who who's never been in one. Um, that, right. that putting, trying to put words to it, trying to, um, put it in this box of language, um, almost, you know, it, you're right. It distracts away from what it actually is to feel and experience, uh, the match and, and same thing with consciousness. You know, we can, we can do our best efforts to try and describe it, but really it's indescribable, um, and I love how you said, you know, the more we try and grasp, the more elusive it feels. I've, I've felt that so many times where I have specific questions that I'm exploring about my consciousness and the deeper I go into these questions and the more answers or solutions I get for these specific questions, um, I, I always come out of it with more questions than when I started, you know, it becomes um, deeper than I even uh, thought it could be when I thought I was, I was reaching for the bottom of, of what it is. Yeah. I think that it's an ever elusive thing. And, and I think that with, you know, reading a lot of the, the mystic texts, I think what the difference between when I've read religious texts, such as if you read, uh, you know, Buddhist philosophy or you know hindu philosophy more within the the religious context than the mystical context um you know the the more religious uh, teachers have this degree of certainty you know i have found an answer i have found the answer for me and when you read about mystics the writings of mystics are often always just simply perceiving the mystery in each present moment and simply witnessing the mystery. And so, you know, for me personally, I I really value that approach because it doesn't, it's not trying to answer a question. It's not trying to generate questions or to get anything. It's just trying to watch. And I think that there's a lot of value to that because it's like when, when you're raising a child, um, you know, there's so many parents that are trying to, you know, they want their child to be a certain way and, and they're trying to fix the way this child is, is growing and, and, you know, oh, must, must make our child smart and, and athletic and, and all these things. Right. But there are other parents who just are amazed that, wow, 
you know, we've created this being and this being just is soaking in the world and is, is creating something simultaneously um, out of its own experience. And I think that I really resonate with that perspective because this mystery is so much bigger than anything that our prefrontal cortex can ever comprehend. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think that the only thing we can grasp with our systems, the only thing that can really be grasped in, in a, in a way that like, you know, that we can have ownership over are the, the feelings that come when we can just perceive the mystery and we can just perceive the present moment. Yeah. You know, that really is the gift of being a human being in this human form. You know, if we are spiritual beings inhabiting this human form, it's for us, it's for a reason, it's for a purpose and perhaps giving ourselves the opportunity to feel um, as we experience that consciousness and just feel it um, is really part of that purpose. Um, I love how you described it as, uh, you know, and you talked about the little child. And to me, when I visualize a little child up to a certain age, it's almost as if they're experiencing pure consciousness and they're just experiencing, you know, they're not yet questioning, you know, why do I even have this consciousness? What is it leading to? Where does it go um, when my body ceases? And this is, um, you know, without those questions, you know, they have this pure experience of consciousness and pure freedom and pure happiness and pure emotion. And none of the, uh, none of the, um, I guess the, the cultural maladies that we, that we put on ourselves as adults, um, you know, that that's interesting to me that if we were as adults, just trying to feel into consciousness. Um, and if we were to experience just that, that a lot of those questions, uh, you know, those existential questions would almost fade away, you know, uh, you know, the, where do we go when, when it's over, um, you know, does our consciousness continue? Uh, what is it? Where does it come from? Is there one consciousness that we're all fractalized versions of, or do we all have individual consciousness? Uh, or is it both, you know, all those questions that we tend to get caught up in and can't quite find answers, uh, to send to tend to just drift away when we emphasize just the feeling into what this experience is and taking it for what it is and taking it with a hundred percent gusto, you know, not, not holding back. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. And I, I think too, that, you know, just, um, you know, those questions are, are really cute, you know, like, you know, not, not in a belittling way. I just mean cute in terms of like, it's such an endearing element of the human, right? Like it's such a, you know, it's, it's adorable, you know, to, to see that part of the mind to come online, you know, it's kind of like trying a new fruit, you know, it's like, Oh, what does it taste like? What is the texture? Where does it come from? What tree, what tree grows this fruit and, and how does this fruit lay its seeds and how can I grow it and where can I get more? And <laughs> instead of just tasting know, the fruit, I mean, just taste the fruit. Right. Right. 
you know, I, 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 during New Year's, I was in Costa Rica and, um, they have, uh, a lot of people drink the juice from, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but in the United States, we call it soursop. Um, and there they call it guanabana. And it's also very popular in Cuba, which, uh, where I'm Cuban. And, so when I was there, you know, I, I've always loved Guanabana as, as a child. You know, my grandparents used to bring that to me and I used to love it. And it's this white juice. It looks like milk. And, um, and so, you know, I'm there and, and I was like, oh, you know, I would love to have some fresh Guanabana juice. And I remember I, we went to this one place and they served it to me. And I, I took the first sip and it was like the best tasting juice I'd ever had, you know, and it, it was just, I knew that I would probably, you know, I, I probably would never be able to find something like that again, you know, and, you know, maybe some other restaurant or whatever. But in that moment, since it was the best that I had ever tasted, it was like, oh, wow, I really have to slow down and just soak it all in. So I, I like that, you know, the, just taste the fruit. <laughs> yeah, just taste the damn fruit. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Um, cool. Well, I, I know you said, uh, you know, when you, when you can, uh, well, I guess when you conceptualize the mind, you try not to emphasize too much on that, but more feeling into it, but I'm going to, I'm going to push a little bit because, um, this is mostly the framework that I'm working from, which is, you know, thinking about consciousness from an intellectual or cognitive place, um, that's where I've done most of my exploration from. So this question comes from that basis and I hope you'll, you'll entertain my question a little bit. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, do you feel like, um, the mind and consciousness are the same thing or do you think they're separate things? Uh, because I tend to, um, tend to want to believe that consciousness or let me start with the mind that the mind is simply a tool. Um, that can be utilized uh, to accomplish a number of tasks, uh, just like the body is a tool. Um, and that consciousness is almost like this overarching operating system that chooses when and how and if it's going to engage with the mind um, in any given given scenario or just let go of it and uh, just be pure consciousness. Uh, what is your take on, on that um, you know, it's almost like a theory of, of mind. Yeah. I, I I think I would largely agree with what you're describing in terms of the mind being a tool. And if we were to give consciousness a little bit of uh, anthropomorphization, we might say that the mind is an experiment of consciousness and yeah just like the body is an experiment of consciousness too right uh you know it's that it's all it's all kind of like well we just kind of see what happens if we have this it's kind of like uh you know the way that we have found a way to make a kaleidoscope right like the kaleidoscope is an experiment on our perception of vision so you know, in the same way that, that the kaleidoscope does this incredible distortions and, and people who make kaleidoscopes 
specialize in how do we make a special kind of distortion, right? I think that the human organism itself, which includes mind, is is in a, in a sense a, a kind of experiment or a lens that consciousness can use to experience itself um, in a concentrated point. Yeah. And it's almost as if, you know, each, each individual human consciousness is its own distinct point of this, like you, like you making it mention at the very beginning of our podcast from this Buddhist perspective, it's a single point uh, representation of the larger one consciousness um, <clears throat> in which like maybe, maybe we all originated from, um, you know, on one of my psychedelic uh visionary experiences i had this uh vision that you know i got to see the original form of consciousness and that it was formless but that it had this desire uh to experience itself in an infinite amount of of ways in every single possible way that it could experience itself and so it made a decision and fractalized uh almost in a holographic sense into every single possible um, form that it could, you know, every human, um, consciousness, um, you know, every pebble, every grain of sand, um, every molecule or atom in the universe is one form of this fractalized, um, one consciousness. And that, uh, you know, it decided that I want to experience myself in all these forms. And then once I'm done with that, uh, I will return to this original form and that'll be, you know, I'll call it a day. And I will have experienced everything. Um, and, and it just seemed like uh, there was some truth to that. When I came back out of that, that vision um, that we are all just a fractalized version of, of consciousness trying to experience itself in an infinite number of ways. Yeah. I mean, that, that reminds me a lot of the Hindu philosophy, the idea of Brahman and Atman and uh you know the the expression of desire and i i think too you know and I, this i think to some degree feels like a kind of evolution of of our experience of consciousness but it it feels very much that there is this underlying desire not only to experience but also to return to connection. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and that's where I think, you know, I, a lot of my philosophy comes back to this idea of relationship because, you know, if, if consciousness, like if we're going to, you know, let's, since we're, since we're uh, giving consciousness a personality, let's continue okay. doing that but for the sake of, this concept but if consciousness wanted to be alone it wouldn't need to create a million billion trillion little machines with with desires and dreams and hearts that can be broken mm -hmm. it wouldn't have any need for that right if it was just trying to have an experience you know but i think that you know the way that humans work, you know, in the sense that humans love to be in contact with one another. They love to, to, 
to feel that they're in community, that they're in relationship, that they, and it is through this, this connect, this kind of interpersonal connection that there is almost a divine connection. And, and uh, you know, maybe you can speak, you're, you're married, so you can maybe speak to this uh, kind of the sacred uh, evolution that, that can happen within relationship. Um, and so I, I guess I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, most certainly, um, you know, every relationship that I have in my life um, feels differently as far as uh, connection goes. Um, you know, I have connections with um, like my brother um, that feels almost like, uh, you know, unbreakable. Uh, even through, you know, physical death, I still feel like I would be deeply connected with him and his, his spiritual presence. Um, you know, with most of my friends and family and my wife, I feel like we've probably been energy energetically entwined, uh, throughout a number of different lifetimes, um, or different existences in different dimensions or whatever. Um, but that we've somehow been tied together and continue to, um, continue to see each other and interact with each other in various lifetimes in various forms. Um, my best friends, I feel like uh, I have extremely deep connections with them almost as deep as I do with my biological brother. Um, you know, where I feel like sometimes, um, you know, when I'm hanging out with my best friends, it almost feels like they're just different versions of myself because we have uh, very similar thoughts very similar, um, uh, you know, conclusions on, on experiences and things like that. And then, you know, of course there's my relationship with my wife. Um, and it was the first relationship where I really felt like, um, like my, my presence, my core energy, um, I allowed it to intertwine with another, another consciousness completely. And especially, you know, during our, <clears throat> during our actual wedding ceremony, uh, which was really deep and, and really um, impactful for me. And I hope for the other people that were there too. Um, but it was a Buddhist based ceremony. And so there was a lot of talk about connection and intertwining our souls and intertwining our spiritual energies and things like that. And after that being witnessed by so many people uh, who were very grateful to have witnessed that and having been done in the setting that it was and with, by the person that it was done by, um, it felt um, like, you know, like I had reached um, one of those ultimate connection points where, you know, our consciousness were brought together uh, where we, we began the ceremony as two separate um, individualized points of consciousness, but by the end we were intertwined. Uh, we still maintained an independent sense of I or self, but that, uh, we were now intertwined somehow that our paths had come together in a way where, um, where our consciousness would, would run parallel to each other. Um, so it, it seemed very, uh, it seemed very right. And that's how I know that I married the right woman um, at the right time is because uh, it, it was not forced at all. And it felt as if this was predestined, you know, that this was, this was 
um, just a natural progression of the universe and that connection. Um, I think some of the most profound connections that I've experienced have been with um, what start out as complete strangers. You know, you're, you're a great example where, you know, we met at the psychedelic conference. I had um, maybe heard your name mentioned once or twice by a couple people. Um, but then as soon as we met, uh, you know, we didn't even talk much that first day that we met, but I felt just um, a connection with you, almost like a kindred spirit type connection. Uh, and I knew upon meeting you, even, even though I didn't know much about you, I knew that we were, you know, our paths or our consciousness was destined to, to cross and that, you know, there was going to be some kind of mutual benefit, uh, some knowledge sharing or, or some experience sharing between us that was going to um, help, help ourselves along our own personal journeys of, of healing and progression. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think I loved hearing what you're, you know, saying, sharing about your, your wedding ceremony. And um, I just couldn't help but think, you know, what, what a beautiful feeling it must have been to feel that merging of consciousness. And, and I just think, you know, uh, or, or even, you know, with your friends or, or family, you know, this being able to recognize, like, we've been here before, we've been together for many lifetimes, like, there's something, um, I think, very special and, and, and uh, really affirming to be able to, to recognize that. Yeah, I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> I'm a lucky guy to, uh, to, uh, to have found, uh, to have found her again in this lifetime. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, um, we're, we're running a little short on time, but I was hoping that, um, you might share with the audience a little bit about your own personal journey of healing uh, through your life. And by all means, you don't have to get into any of the details if you, if you don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, I know a bit of your journey and uh, I don't want to step on your toes by, by um, speaking to your truth, but I was hoping that you might be able to provide at least a little bit about your journey of personal healing, because, you know, in my experience, and from what I hear from the listeners too, that, that that's sometimes the most powerful part of these podcasts is when the guests talk about their own um, struggles and their own path to find um, solution. And um, a lot of, a lot of the, the benefit comes from sharing your story that you may not know impacts um, people, but but those listeners are out there and they're hearing, they may hear something that, that sticks out and they're like, oh, wow, I've never tried that. Maybe that's the answer for me. Um, I was hoping you could share a little bit about, you know, some of the difficulties you've been through and some of the lessons you've learned about yourself and how to um, heal yourself and how to have compassion for yourself on this journey. Well, um, I would say that, uh, you know, the early part of my life was, um, I think on the surface looked really nice, but, um, but that the circumstances that I was exposed to and a lot of situations that I was in, um, led to some really deep, 
construct of uh, unworthiness of love and unworthiness of acceptance and that you know those um, came together with with a lot of unanswered questions about about life and um, led to a, a very deep feeling of isolation uh, both as a result of you know uh, family structures that were you know that were less than ideal and uh, you know um, being in a culture that is so individualistic and um and i i think part of it too i think just being a really inquisitive person you know i think it can be kind of hard for a young person to be accepted for having a mind like that um you know not everyone you know i mean i remember being in like fifth grade and reading Shakespeare and nobody else in my class was reading Shakespeare and they could not understand why I would want to read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of, uh, and so that, that set me up for many years of, of isolation and managing pain uh, associated with isolation and, um, and, and, finding myself in relationships that um, perpetuated that pain and validated that pain and, and continued to, um, to give me that message that yes, you are indeed alone and no one's ever going to care about you and you don't deserve to be cared for. Hmm. Why do you think we, why do you think we as humans have this need to uh, validate um, terrible things that happen to us? Well, I think part of it is a desire to understand those, those things. And part of it is that, you know, the initial experience of that tells us that this is the way the world is. And so we come to expect that. Right. And we don't consciously seek it out, but it just, it's what feels right. And, and there's an inherent part of us that just kind of gravitates towards those things. Right. It kind of, it's almost like, uh, that's, what's normal to us. You know, like if someone is, um, you know, is treated abusively by their mother, they might, uh, they might seek out abusive relationships in future, you know, um, spousal relationships, because that's just no- the normal, that's what they expect to happen. That's what they, uh, you know, instead of, instead of maybe asking themselves, is there a different way that this can happen? Is it possible that, uh, you know, I can be in a relationship that's not abusive. Um, and it's almost scary to consider, um, something uh, outside of the realm of your own experience. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for the, for the extra question, but go, go ahead with your story. Oh, no worries. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I, I think, uh, is, you know, in, in my younger years, uh, I definitely searching for answers and trying to understand and having, um, you know, various experiences with, with psychedelics, um, you know, and, and part of me is really thankful that, that I gravitated towards psychedelics and you know, not towards other, uh, other substances that could, could have led me down a very different path. But um, having these experiences with psychedelics had gave me uh, a perspective that validated my inner state that told me that that something was wrong outside 
you know, that, that my, that my feelings of sadness and isolation were because there was something actually wrong, that there, it wasn't all about me, you know, it wasn't. And, and so even though in, in my day to day and even, you know, in, in my subconscious, there was this feeling that there's something wrong with me. And, you know, and, and I, it took a very long time for me to get to a point where I could finally start to integrate into my system that, um, that there was nothing wrong with me, you know, and, um, and I, you know, and having done, you know, a lot of work trying to, as, as a lot of people say, you know, trying to heal myself, um, alone, you know, using, using psychedelics, using, uh, you know, meditation, you know, I had a, a very, strict meditation practice for a long time. I uh, did uh, Vajrayana Buddhism meditation. Um, I did a lot of mindfulness work. I did, you know, I did a lot of um, backpacking and spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And, um, and you know, even with all that work, there is, there's some piece missing. And, um, you know, I think uh, I, I got pretty far. I, I feel like I got pretty far in terms of I had a really good awareness, um, you know, I, I think. And, and so when I came to Innate Path uh, working, you know, part of, part of working as a therapist is the therapists are expected to do their own work. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that means having, having the experience of, not just, you know, um, taking these medicines, but doing the therapy, you know, being, being a client, you know, going through the struggles that your clients are going to go through. And, um, and so when I started working with this modality, you know, doing sessions uh, with a therapist, using this modality, it it filled in so many of the blanks that I had and I, it, it gave me some of the most potent realizations in in the form of realizing that the biggest missing key had been relationship. I needed to, to face the darkest and the worst parts had to be faced with another person. And, um, and time and time again, you know, uh, working with the, the brave people that, um, that I have the privilege to work with, the clients that I work with, um, time and time again, you know, that, that truth just repeats itself over and over again that, you know, and there's always the, the, there's always the fantasy that I'm going to heal myself on my own. All I have to do is take some mushrooms in my room in the dark and it's going to heal me. But there's so many pieces that are completely inaccessible because you need to have another person there to validate that you are no longer alone. And, uh, and so for me, I've been incredibly thankful, um, you know, for all the experiences in my life that, that have been uh, incredibly difficult 
and um, you know for for all the the hurt that I've received and uh, and the hurt that I've caused you know and I, and I think a lot about the the there are several parts of healing but the the first part of healing is trust if if you don't trust then healing can't start um and then there ha then after there's trust there has to be a desire to do no harm there has to be a desire to stop putting harm into the world and then i think that through those pieces we can start to really look at the deepest and darkest parts and we can start to feel not only the pain that um that has been inflicted on others but also the pain that has been inflicted upon us yeah i like how you said um you know a willingness to to stop doing harm to the world um that's so powerful I think uh, for me personally, on my own journey um, of healing, you know, a lot of my stuff was was more about, um, you know, having a willingness to stop doing harm to myself. Um, and I feel, you know, there's a lot of people out there just like that as well that that are stuck in these in these patterns of um, self destructive behaviors, um, whether it be addiction or self-harm or whatever, you know, I engaged in so many harmful behaviors to myself um, and denied my, uh, you know, the most basic connection there is, which is my connection to myself. I denied that connection for so long and I denied uh, my connection to, you know, a, a sense of a higher power and things like that and felt so disconnected that it perpetuated into and manifested into self-destructive behaviors. And the more self-destructive I got, the more pain and suffering it caused to those around me who had to watch and witness um, someone they loved um, implode and self-destruct. And uh, I know for me, one of the biggest realizations was, um, you know, that willingness or that openness to, to consider that there's another way, you know, that I don't have to get in my way all the time. I don't have to perpetuate a cycle of self-sabotage or of literal like physical harm. You know, I would put myself in, in situations all the time where I would ask other people to do physical damage to my body because I, you know, I had such little regard for um, my physical self or um, who I was as a person or held such low value for who I was. Um, it was so painful and so dark and, uh, it was very difficult to, to be able to face that and, and, um, go into that piece of myself to explore it, you know, it was so scary. But once I did, like you said, once you explore those deepest, darkest parts of yourself, you emerge with not only a new understanding of what it was that you were suffering with, but also you emerge with, um, an idea of how to and, um, you know, it's, it's always evolving. It's always changing. It's always improving, um, my, you know, my methods of connecting with myself, uh, but it has to start somewhere. And, and maybe for some people, not for everybody, but maybe for some people, psychedelics, uh, is that route, that route to, um, to face those parts of yourself and to emerge, uh, more whole 
you know, more balanced, more connected. Yeah. For me, I, I think that psychedelics allow for people who have lived a life that has been void of connection. It allows for that connection to exist again and to have the experience of that connection that is supporting one through pain and suffering. And, uh, and that is, in my opinion, the, the greatest, most integrated way of, of doing, you know, having healing happen um, with these medicines. You know, I think that the medicines themselves can, can shine a lot of light on, on many different aspects of the self. But exploring those uh, incredibly scary places with a supportive presence, with a supportive person that's there, that, um, that can give the unconditional love that we all deserve, gives us a new map for what love is and it gives us a new map of what to expect in the world and and like you said you know you in your own you know you had to um you had to accept that relationship with yourself you know i think that um that doing that work with somebody and and really working through trust and working through um, commitment and allowing, allowing oneself to be loved. Mm. I think that that's, that's such a key thing. And, and that's what these medicines can, uh, can bring us to in combination with another person is open us to allowing ourselves to be loved. And I think that the real medicine is the love. And that's the ultimate medicine. And whether it's how much we allow it in, how much can we receive? And I think that through a lot of the difficult experiences that people can have in life, um, you know, different traumas and, and losses, that we, we close up and we, we stop receiving. We become scared to receive. And these medicines can give us a second chance to receive again. Yeah. Very powerful. But we need, we need something to receive, you know. We're not just receiving the medicine, the drug, but we are receiving the presence of another person. And I think that that, you know, it's, it's one of the ultimate things. Powerful, powerful. Um, yeah, in the last podcast uh, with my guest, we were talking about how um, this idea of malnourishment, not only of, of actual nutrients in, in the biology of a human being, but also malnourishment in um, a human's mental capacity, spiritual capacity. Um, and in this sense, in our discussion today, malnourishment, uh, not getting enough love, uh, viewing love as one of these essential nutrients that we need to function as uh, the most effective human that we can, um, you know, that maybe, you know, a malnourishment of love is, is part of, um, you know, what's, what's causing a lot of the disorder and uh, a lot of the disease or dis-ease in a lot of human beings and a lot of, um, a lot of spirits all over the world is, is not allowing ourselves to accept the, 
the nutrient of the universe in order to feel um, what it truly means to be human. So powerful. Uh, So to our listeners, if you get any message at all from this podcast, um, allow yourself to be loved, allow yourself Mm -hmm. to accept love and support from other people um, and open yourself to the possibility that others can love you and will love you and do love you no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you do in life, open yourself to that love and uh, hopefully gain some of that nourishment. And also don't try and uh, take these, you know, don't try and take on, on the world by yourself. Don't try and hold up the weight of these issues yourself. It's, it's much easier and much more beneficial to share that load with others who are willing to um, help support you along your own pathway. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're all here for. I think I, I love the Ram Das quote. We're all just walking each other home. Oh, that's great. And, uh, and, and if we can, we can accept that, that is the acceptance of love. And not only are we giving ourselves the opportunity to receive love, but we're giving an opportunity for someone else to give love and you know, I think both of those things, if, if we can really distill our, our time on this, in this existence, in this realm, if we can distill it down to that, giving and receiving love and balancing between that, I think, um, I don't know, I think it makes the world such a wonderful place to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, Raph, I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast today. This was an amazing uh, conversation, as all of our conversations are. I hope to have you again on in the future. Um, Great. Yeah, yeah, I hope you had fun. Um, I want to let our uh, listening audience know that, uh, again, we are sponsored by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Um, that's also probably the best place that, uh, you, the listener can go and leave comments for either myself or my guests. You can leave us comments or questions. Um, there is a section, um, to shoot us an email on the website. So please do that. Um, also continue to like, and share the podcast. And that's the best way um, to get the message out to more and more ears, more and more listeners. And of course, uh, as always, you can donate to the podcast, um, in order for us to um, provide you a greater listening experience in the future. And last but not least, please visit our mind ops YouTube page uh, where you can find a number of videos uh, that I've uploaded, breaking down some of the um, concepts that we talk about on the podcast, uh, whether it be psychology based, um, human performance based or um, psychedelic psychedelic based conversations. I break down a lot of those concepts and will continue to do so uh, when I find the time. So I want to thank my guests one more time and thank all the listeners for listening. Uh, This is conversations with the mind. Please continue to listen and uh, get ready for a new episode coming soon. Thanks again, Raph. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Okay. Bye.